13. No mixed situation have been embodied in formulas. What has been its intellectual expression? This is no idle question. For men have always claimed to be guided by ideas, and generally they are, but they rarely know where their ideas come from or in what they consist. Without intellectual expression imperialism would not have extended to all the classes of society. The passion of economic conquest did not prevail throughout the whole of Germany. The bourgeois in the liberal provinces, the corps of officers, the corps of teachers, the clergy were refractory to it. This direct form of imperialism does not seduce them. Not everybody can see his country and the universe through the eyes of an oligarch of high finance. A doctrine works with power when it appeals to instincts, when it awakens collective emotions, diverse enough in themselves, and joins them to each other with an appearance of logical deduction. It is not indispensable, but it is full that it should borrow the language of the day. In the medieval epoch this language was religious. Beginning with the 17th century it was metaphysical. In our own time it is a scientific language set off by Greek words. If the German philosophies of the second half of the 19th century are considered, there are not many of them that pass beyond the limit of the school. They are honest, scholarly productions elaborated by men who have read much, of whom some, like Wundt, are eminent specialists, but who have not conquered either their subjects or their readers. One feels that they are not of their century. It is not from them. It is not from Yukon the pleasant popularizer. It is not from Weindelband or Ostwald that the cultivated public sought the direction for its thought, to satisfy the need of general ideas which was everywhere felt. Associations were formed, churches with or without God, of which a very important one was the Monastendband, in which Haeckel exploited his materialism transformed into a sort of biological pantheism. But it was outside of the associations and outside of the school that the flame of creative genius burned brightly. The man of the last generation was Nietzsche. That his thought has been perverted by his interpreters there is no doubt. They have taken the seagull who gazed in blinded at the sun and exhibited him to the young people in all sorts of philosophic roles for the benefit of the industrial and military coalition. Nietzsche depicted in lines of fire the resurrection of heroism. His vision of the superman was that of an ardent soul, steeled by sufferings, meditating a tragic conception of life with serenity and in his solitary individualism surmounting the infirmity of man and his own by the insistent will to eternal ascension. He was made the apostle of brute force, a sort of messiah of the struggle for life. Moreover, he was soon put one side and Gobino was revived. He also, who if he did not have genius had wit, would have been surprised and hardly flattered perhaps by the role which they made him play. The dolichocephalic long-skulled blonde whom he celebrated was not exactly the one whom we are now judging by his works, but at least he proclaimed the superiority of the German race. His doctrine was the center around which were gathered a complete ensemble of dogmas and of very diverse theories, whose connected thread it is not easy to discover when it is searched for logically, but appears quite distinctly when not reason, but reasons, are demanded. The reasons are found in the need of justifying in theory the economic and military imperialism, born as we have seen from conditions of fact and from very practical motives. I do not pretend that it was calculated, nor that the optimates made express requisition of the naturalists, economists, and historians and sociologists and moralists to provide an imperialistic philosophy for the use of adult and normal dolichocephalous blondes, but there certainly was a coincidence. It may have been due to the influence of what is called a milieu and beyond, that of the commercial and military party. The authors of the doctrine lived in a special atmosphere. 
Their intellect was their formed or deformed their work consisted in gathering facts, inventing reasonings, elaborating formulas, so as to subject natural science, history and morality to the service of that keen will for hegemony which was in Germany the common characteristic and was the connecting link between the ancient and the new directing class. To convince one that this is so, it is enough to arrange the works of the pan-Germanists in a series passing from the simplest to the most complicated. The dates are of no importance. We might put at one of the extremes the works of the Prussian general, von Bernhardi, and at the other the gigantic liquidation of a famous pan-German zealot, a neophyte, a convert, almost a deserter, Mr. Houston Stuart Chamberlain. Professor Milliaud examines at some length and acutely the tendencies and teachings of von Bernhardi, now familiar to American readers, sums up the work of the philosophers of minor rank and turns to Mr. Chamberlain, with Mr. Chamberlain the thesis of vital competition, the morality of force, the judgment of history against little nations, the civilizing mission imposed upon greater Germany by its very greatness, by its economic, scientific and artistic superiority. Everything tends to the glorification of the German, to his duty to govern the whole world which he feels so imperatively and which he accepts with such a noble simplicity. His work is not easily summarized, not only because it counts 1.379 pages and two appendices, but because all is in everything, and everything in the universe is also in Mr. Chamberlain's book, and the German has made everything, not indeed the world, that he has only remade and is about to remake but he has a way of remaking so creative that one might say that without him the creator himself would be a bit embarrassed. He has gathered to himself alone the heritage of Greece and Rome as far as it was worth anything. From the year 1200 to the year 1800 he founded, ripened, and saved a new civilization several times over. The mother of our sciences and our arts, Italy, is Germanic, the great architecture of the Middle Ages is Germanic, the true interpretation of Christianity the true conception of art, the true social economy, the love of nature, the sense of individuality, the exploration of the world and of the soul, the great reawakenings of conscience, all the great flashes of thought are Germanic, everything is Germanic, except you and me, perhaps, so much the worse for me and so much the worse for you, after this book, the success of which has been prodigious, it would truly seem that there is nothing more to say. Germanic thought has appropriated the universe to itself. It only remained for the German sword to complete the work. It is strong. I have tried to describe the modifications, or rather the successive editions, by which the elementary themes disclosing economic, political, and military appetites in the directing class have been disguised as theories of biology, history, political economy, sociology, and morality. It would take another study or another article to show how science was perverted to such ends, the severity of methods, rigor in the determination of facts, precision in reasoning, prudence in generalization, serene impartiality and objectivity in verification, in a word the scientific spirit, cannot be bent to so many pleasant compromises without sacrificing a great part of its dignity and its title to a respect. This has been a singular and melancholy event for those of us who have been raised in respect for German science and in admiration for its methods, as well as for its discoveries. Certainly, from Liebig to Röntgen and to Bering, from Kant to Wundt, Germany has counted many distinguished pioneers, in the matter of feat and originality, however, and creative inspiration, Italy and France have always equaled, if not surpassed, her. She has had no Marsoni. No Pasteur or Poincaré, no Carroll, 
what we have received from her so long that it has become almost a matter of instinct is less dazzling flashes than an equal and constant light, and the savants, the university men who bring to us anthropological romances, history stuffed with legends and personal prejudices, sociology constructed in contempt of the facts. In these later days we have seen all these joining under the guidance of their most illustrious members to address the civilized nations in an appeal in which by virtue of their quality as savants they undertook to pronounce upon facts which they don't understand, to deny those which they cannot help understanding, and solemnly to declare that it is not true that Germany has violated the neutrality of the territory of Belgium. For proof of this, nothing but their word of honor. Do they take us for those young gentlemen who said to Munga, Professor, Give us your word of honor that this theorem is true and we will excuse you from the demonstration of it. Fully to explain the role of the intellectual savants and university men in the formation of the ideology of caste which prevails among the Germans it would be necessary to recite the history of instruction in Germany, not such as Davis and Paulson have written it, but such as it actually is under the influence of institutions and programs I mean the moral history of instruction. The great Frederick was wont to cry, I commence by taking Afterward I shall always have pedants enough to establish my rights. Pedants or not, the members of the teaching corps of every grade in Germany are a wheel of the state. Their mission is to form not men, but Germans, to inculcate the national idea. Their views have penetrated even to the common people. Germany receives a double education that of the school and that of the barracks. The spirit of these two institutions is the same, and their influence which has been exercised since 1848 in opposition to humanitarian and internationalist ideas, has encountered no serious obstacles, for it went readily with certain old instincts which it was not difficult to reawaken and which general circumstances favored. Said Caesar, speaking of the Germans, pillage brings no shame, this desire of gain. This positive and realistic tendency is one of the motives which the brusque and prodigious economic expansion of Germany has promoted in the most efficient manner. This total assimilation of a people of area code 70000000 of souls by an aristocratic, almost a feudal, directing class, a combination of plutocrats and militarists, is in reality a most curious phenomenon, more than curious, in a sense grandiose and in any case full of suggestions and menaces, surrender of body and soul, confidence almost religious, enthusiastic faith, the directing class has conquered everything within in order to conquer everything without, now it stakes everything upon the cast of the dice, I have not undertaken to decide whether it is just or not, the event will determine whether it is genius or madness, the land of M.A.D.R. Reliancy came by Alfred Sutro from King Albert's book, I have translated many books of Mitterlings, I have wandered with him among the canals of Bruges and the fragrant gardens of Ghent, I have seen the places where he dreamed of Pelis and Melisande, and the hives of the bees he loved, through him I learned to know Belgium, today all the world knows, her cities are laid waste now and her people scattered, but her people will return and rebuild the cities, and the enemy will be dust, the day will come when the war will be far distant, a thing of the past, remote, forgotten but never, while men endure or heroism counts, will it be forgotten what the Belgians did for liberty's sake and for the sake of Albert, their king, America and Prohibition Russia to mustard seeds of reform carried from this land to the steppes by Isabel F. Hapgood when Russia recently abolished the sale of liquor, first in the shops run as a government monopoly, and, after a brief experience of the beneficent results, in the restaurants and clubs as well, 
an astonished and admiring world recognized the measure as one of the greatest events in the moral history of a nation. It takes rank with the reforms of Peter the Great. It almost casts into the shade the emancipation of the serfs. There has always existed in Russia a strong party which severely disapproved of Peter precisely because he forced Western ideas upon them. Their idea has always been that Russia would have developed a far higher degree of genuine culture and far more precious spiritual qualities had she been left to the promptings of her own genius and its healthy, natural development. And there are, indubitably, persons scattered through the vast Russian Empire who entertain parallel opinions with regard to the total prohibition of liquor just effected, and with regard to the projected change in the calendar now assumed to be imminent. I trust that I shall not increase their numbers to dangerous proportions if I call attention to the fact that these reforms have also, like Peter the Great's ideas, been imported from the West from the Far West, the United States. I am sure my fellow countrymen will be gratified to learn the truth, and I cheerfully accept the risk, and assume that Russia will, in all probability, remain ignorant of my interference. It is true that we do not have actual, effective prohibition anywhere here in America and that we do not seem to be within measurable distance of such an achievement, that Russia has distanced us again in this, just as she distanced us by emancipating her serfs, without a war, before we emancipated our slaves, with the aid of a war, but we have supplied the scriptural mustard seed in the case of prohibition in Russia, and have either furnished the seed for the change in the calendar, or, at any rate, have provided elements that have hastened its growth to a very remarkable degree. Mustard seed number one was carried over from the United States in the autumn of 1887 and sown on the good ground of the late Count Tolstoy, and other noblemen, whence as results show it spread abroad with a swiftness suggestive rather of the proverbial weed than of the fair flower its blossoming has shown it to be. In the autumn of 1886 Dr. Peter Semyonovich Alexeyev of Moscow, accompanied by his wife, sailed for Canada and the United States for the purpose of inspecting the hospitals, prisons, and elementary schools, and they came for the winter because some parts of Canada during that season possess a climate similar to that of central Russia, while in other parts the climates are identical. In fact, Canada is the only country in the world where the climatic conditions are at all analogous. The construction of new hospitals, the adaptation of already existing buildings for hospital use, the internal arrangement, and the perfection of their internal machinery had long been matters of deep interest to Dr. Alexeyev. Germany and France, with climates so different from that of Russia, could not furnish him with the information available in North America, where, in his opinion, the habits and conditions of existence such important factors in matters connected with hospitals and invalids also differ less from those of Russia than do the general surroundings in the countries of the continent. After visiting the principal cities of Canada and the United States from Quebec to Vancouver, and from Boston to Washington, some of them more than once, Dr. Alexeyev arrived at the conclusion that the hospitals of the United States were better built and much better administered than those of London, Paris, Berlin, and Vienna. Naturally, no one could spend nine months in investigating hospitals and prisons in this country without coming in contact with the liquor problem. Moreover, Dr. Alexeyev was a widowed man, who took an interest not only in all matters connected with his profession, but in very many outside of it. He was, also, a man of very lofty character. His wife once wrote me concerning him somewhat as follows, he walks, habitually, on such moral heights, in such a rarefied spiritual atmosphere, that I the daughter of an English clergyman, reared accordingly, 
and myself as you know deeply in sympathy with it, find difficulty in following him, obviously, he was precisely the man to appreciate the temperance movement, and to carry it to its logical conclusion, in the preface to a volume, about America, which he published in Moscow in 1888, he writes, Neither the wonders of wild nature in the Rocky Mountains nor the menacing might and grandeur of Niagara produce such an impression on a Russian as the success of the fight with drunkenness the temperance movement and the successful development, in all classes of society, of morality and the strict application of practical morals. He did not confine himself to this brief, general statement. He wrote in praise of temperance, of prohibition, for learned Russian societies. Then he wrote a book entitled, Concerning Drunkenness. The censors permit to publish as dated March 29, April 10, 1887. It was published by the management of the magazine, Ruskaya Missile, Russian Thought, which may indicate that it had first appeared in that monthly as a series of articles, though I have not been able to verify the fact. The book may have been published promptly, or at least the article from the medical magazine may have been published in the cheap form costing two or three cents used by the semi-commercial semi-philanthropic firm, Posrednik, which may be rendered, middleman, or, mediator, designed for the dissemination of good and full reading among the masses, at any rate, concerning drunkenness, appeared at the price of one ruble about fifty cents in 1891, prefaced by a dissertation by Count Tolstoy, why do people stupefy themselves, specially written for this occasion, as Dr. Alexeyev told me, it has been translated under the title of, alcohol and tobacco, London, and published without any indication that Dr. Alexeyev inspired it. In 1896 a second edition, revised and enlarged, was published, also in Moscow, and to this the author added a list of helpful publications and a summary bibliography, which included books issued in various foreign countries, ranging in number from 705 for Great Britain and colonies, 142 for the United States, 247 for Germany. 124 for 10 other countries combined, up to 1885 in all these cases, to 10 for Russia, of these 10, 4 are in Latin, 4 in German, 1 is in Swedish and 1 in Russian the latter, evidently, an article republished from the medical news, on the whole, a list practically non-existent, so far as Russia was concerned, Dr. Alexeyev had discovered a field of endeavor as virgin as the unplowed steppe. Only scientists desperately hard up for an unusual topic for a strictly academic discussion and recklessly willing to risk incurring universal unpopularity would have dreamed of unearthing those volumes. He promptly aroused Count Tolstoy's interest in the subject of temperance, which in this case signified prohibition, since the Count in his preface to drive Alexeyev's book dated July 10, 22, 1890, treated liquor on the same basis as tobacco which he had totally abjured at least two years previously, with Tolstoy, to become convinced that a reform was desirable was, as all the world knows, to become an ardent propagandist of that reform, thanks to the efforts of Dr. Alexeyev, seconded by those of Tolstoy, temperance began to attract attention in Russia, temperance societies were formed, and have been steadily increasing ever since in numbers and activity. Eventually Mr. Chilishev arrived on the scene with his splendid vital force and practical solutions of the financial and other problems or suggestions for them that arise from prohibition, especially when a government monopoly and revenue are concerned, which he most strenuously advocated when mayor of Samra, as representative in the Duma everywhere, in fact, where he could obtain a hearing, willing or unwilling, 
up to the Emperor Nicholas himself, and the Emperor showed that he was equal to the magnificent opportunity, and joined hands with the former peasant in aiding his country. In an interview published by the Times a while ago Mr. Chilishev mentions that his attention was first drawn to the subject of the evils of drunkenness by a book which he saw a Mujik reading. Judging from the point at which he inserts that mention into his outline sketch of his career previous to the great famine which he erroneously assigns to the end of the 80s, but which came in 1891 his interest was aroused precisely at the time when Drive Alexeyev's first utterances may be assumed to have seen the light of print, at any rate. It is an admitted fact that Dr. Alexeyev carried to Russia and to Tolstoy from the United States the idea and inspiration which has borne such wonderful fruit in the abolition of the liquor traffic, forever. As the Imperial UK's runs, Mr. Chilishev is a noteworthy figure in history accordingly. But Dr. Alexeyev should not be forgotten. When I made his acquaintance at Count Tolstoy's, in Moscow, he had just requested and obtained a detail of service in Qatar, Transbaikal Province. Siberia, as physician to the political exiles there, thinking the region would repay study from many points of view. In his leisure hours, the preface to the first edition of his book, Concerning Drunkenness, is dated, July, 1899, Qatar, and from Qatar I received my copy from him. In that preface he states the scope of his book in a way which confirms my conviction that Mr. Chilishev was first stirred to interest, and in the end aroused to action, by the United States via Dr. Alexeyev. He writes, The battle which in all ages has been waged against drunkenness has been confined hitherto almost exclusively to the realms of medicine and ethics, the social part of the question is only just beginning to be worked out, and has hardly as yet won the rights of citizenship, and down to our own day there have been no serious legal measures adopted for the battle with drunkenness. Therefore, he omits the legal aspects of the matter in his book and confines himself to an attempt at popularizing the information scattered in diverse individual books, borrowing everything which can lead to the ultimate goal the extermination of the evil caused by the use of spirituous drinks. He continues, public opinion has nowhere as yet, even in the lands where considerable success has attended the war on drunkenness, ripened sufficiently a desire to give, even incompletely, a summary of the information about that battle and make my fellow countrymen acquainted with a matter still little known in Russia. So I am prompted to write what follows, the second edition of this book, with the surprising list of Russian treatises on drunkenness to which I have already alluded, is dated, June, 1895, Riga, where he lived after his return from Siberia, as an official of the government medical service, until his death in August, 1913, during the stay in Qatar of the Alexeyevs. The present emperor then the heir, passed through it, on his way home from the trip to India and Japan which came so near terminating fatally in the latter country after having officially opened work upon the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway, on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, a formal reception and ceremonies were organized in Qatar, and I allude to the matter because of a curious detail mentioned in a letter to me by Mrs. Alexeyev. Foreigners had very queer ideas, she said. As to the position and treatment of the political exiles in Siberia, some of the Qatar exiles served as heads of the committees for welcoming the heir, and he shook hands with them and treated them exactly as he treated the governor-general of the province. Whether it was his admiration for the American temperance movement which influenced Drive Alexeyev's views on everything American, I cannot say, but, assuredly, not many foreign visitors have pronounced upon our country such a panegyric as is contained in the preface to his, Across America, he writes, 
conscientious fulfillment of every duty, industry, energy, and moral purity are the typical qualities of the genuine American. It is difficult to form any idea of the wide development of philanthropy, the significance of religion, and the practical application to a life of ethical principles, the application of moral obligations in business, the upright, God-fearing life of the Americans, unless one has lived among them, they have neither prostitution, foundling hospitals, nor hospitals for venereal diseases. A European is not accustomed to see anti-prisons and hospitals in densely settled localities to come upon cities where there is nothing for the police, the judges, and the doctors to do he finds startling. They have attained the height where priests, pastors, preachers, and teachers are rarely obliged to contend with indifference. After a trip to America it would be difficult to return an atheist you are more likely to come back in a religious frame of mind. Idleness and luxury are not among the distinguishing characteristics of the descendants of the Puritans. In the light, transparent atmosphere of the states, simplicity, the cheerful, alert spirit infects the foreigner, makes him a more frank, trustful, optimistic warrior for the truth, and causes him to forget what it means to be downcast in spirit, or what spleen and hypochondria are, until he died, in Siberia, in Russia, everywhere. Dr. Alexeyev worked for temperance. He was enthusiastic about it when I saw him and his wife in England, in 1907, Mr. Chilishev having been aroused to interest, theoretically, by America, via Dr. Alexeyev, as is fairly proven, it was only natural that he should proceed to make the personal observations on the practical, social side of drunkenness which he mentions in his Times interview, he noticed, during the Great Famine of 1891 that it was the drunkards who had squandered their grain and pawned their possessions to the keepers of the dram shops who robbed other men's granaries and houses, burned, rioted, and murdered, while the men who did not drink had plenty of food and grain to hold out. We are informed from Russia that even during its still brief rain prohibition has resulted in remarkable improvement in health, living conditions, and bank accounts. Mr. Chilishev Island as I have said, a noteworthy figure in history. He would be a remarkable figure in any land, but for those who are not acquainted with Russia, the rise of a man born a peasant, educated solely by his own efforts on stray newspapers and books which fell in his way in his schoolless village, and absolutely lacking in money or influence. Spiazzi, connections, is the Russian version of Pole, to the position of multimillionaire and company worker with the emperor, is amazing almost beyond belief. In reality, it is as simple as the rise of an American newsboy of an Edison or a Carnegie to a position of power in the United States. Fate, circumstances, as well as their own personality are the factors in all these cases, and in every similar case. Moreover, there is in Russia no eternally impassable barrier of caste, but there is a genuine democracy which is not easy to define, but is very easily felt. For instance, the title of Prince, to which, and like that of Count or Baron, conferable one must be born, runs the rule with exceptions for such national heroes as Suvorov, counts for nothing or approximately that, unless its owner possesses, in addition, the wealth, character, learning or other characteristics which would render him a man of mark without it. There are other interesting instances of peasants who have risen high in Russia, and Mr. Chilishev is their worthy successor. The founder of the great silversmith's firm of Ofchinikov was a serf. His successors had made it their rule, out of gratitude to God to maintain and educate a certain number of poor boys, who, when their intellectual and technical training is completed, 
are free to remain with the firm as valued artists or to go forth independently. When the Emperor Alexander II celebrated the 25th anniversary of his accession to the throne, all the sovereigns of Europe sent him magnificent presents. These are assembled in his library, at the Winter Palace, Petrograd, and in the center accorded that place by the Russians with equal good feeling, good taste, and justice is a large group in solid silver representing a huge mass of rock upon whose pinnacle stand figures representing the different parts of the empire Little Russia, Siberia, and so forth. The inscription reads, To the Tsar Liberator from the Liberated Surf. It was made by the Ofchinikovs and presented by another ex-surf, who had become a millionaire railway magnate. Mustard seed number two from America to Russia falls into a somewhat different category. It more nearly resembles one of those grains of antique wheat found in a two men sprouting vigorously when finally planted in congenial, helpful soil. I trust that my comparison may not be regarded as disrespectful. One could not, willingly, be disrespectful to the calendar, any more than to the thermometer. Russia, by adhering to the Julian calendar and refusing to adopt the Gregorian, has now fallen 13 days behind the rest of the world. It falls behind about a day for every century. There are several reasons why Russia has not, up to now, remedied the serious inconvenience caused by this conflict of dates. One is the Gregorian calendar is Roman Catholic, and named after a pope. It island also, inaccurate, worst of all, the rectificatione might almost infallibly would, under ordinary circumstances cause trouble at the outset, especially in one incalculably important direction. Russian scientists long ago worked out a new calendar far more accurate than the Gregorian for thousands of years, and when the change is made that calendar will be adopted. The fundamental difficulty lies in the fact that all the people whose saints' days must inevitably be skipped for the first year in the process of rectificatione will inevitably feel that they are being robbed of their guardian angels, that they are orphans, a mournful word greatly beloved of the Russian masses under multiform circumstances both material and spiritual and orphaned in a peculiarly distressing and irrevocable way. They might even feel when their saints' days came around quite correctly the next year that some spurious adventurer angel of darkness was being foisted upon them. Fanatics and professional mischief-makers would certainly seize with avidity upon such a godsend of a chance, and paralleled since the day.